You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. I'm Dallas Taylor. Humans love to make noise, and we've been developing our extraordinary noise-making abilities for around a million years. We've graduated from simple grunts to the intricacies of speech in thousands of languages. Now, with the help of technology, we can make pretty much any sound we want. So, it's little wonder that we consider ourselves to be the ultimate masters of sound. But there's an extraordinary group of animals that might just be able to do better. Those animals are birds. Nearly half of all the birds on Earth are what is known as songbirds. And most of them are able to produce elaborate songs, like this one from the nightingale. Songbirds can be found in pretty much every country around the world. Wherever you go, it's pretty likely you'll catch a refrain or two drifting across the air. But if you think about it, when was the last time you actually stopped and listened to these bird songs? Since I started birding at such a young age, hearing birdsong is just a natural part of being awake. That's Ken Kaufman, a lifelong naturalist and birder. Ken's also the author of loads of iconic field guides for identifying birds across North America. When I was a little kid, I was in northern Indiana, in the, the Great Lakes area, and the neighborhood really didn't have anything in the way of rare birds or anything unusual, but even things like house sparrows and cardinals, they were just so intense. That was the thing, uh, Just birds just seemed so intensely alive that uh, I was fascinated by them. Birds, they can make an incredible variety of sounds from extremely low-pitched sounds. And they can make high-pitched sounds beyond the range of human hearing. They really have quite a range, and they can go from harsh to sweet to buzzy, so all different tone qualities. The key to this extraordinary range of sounds lies in the bird's physical anatomy. Humans and other mammals, we've got this organ called the larynx that's at the top of the trachea, at the top of our windpipe. And the action of the muscles and the folds around that, when air goes through the larynx, we make things like voice, like the words I'm saying now. You can try it yourself. Put your fingers over the front of your throat. When you speak, you can feel the vibrations from your larynx, which comes out of your mouth as sound. Songbirds have a larynx too, but they don't use it for making sound. For that, they have a different organ, called the syrinx. It's at the base of the windpipe where it connects to the lungs. And at that point, the windpipe divides into two. There's two branches there, and those two collectively make up the syrinx. So each half, each of these tubes going to half the lungs, has its own set of really intricate muscles and membranes, and the way that they vibrate as the air passes through creates the bird sound. There are a lot of similarities between the human larynx and the songbird's syrinx, but the fact that the syrinx is placed on the two branches leading to the lungs is all important. The two parts of the syrinx can actually operate independently, so a bird literally can sing two notes at once. It can sing a chord there's a bird in New Zealand called the kokako, 
It's this amazing bird that goes bounding around in the rainforest. It looks uh, bizarre. But when the kokako is singing, you can really hear the two notes being sung at once. And it's beautiful. It sounds like someone's improvising on an organ back in the forest, just slowly doing these notes, these little trills and grace notes and chords. And then every once in a while, we'll throw in this weird, odd squawk or ugly noise, just so we know it's actually a bird. With a two-part syrinx that's more versatile than our own voice boxes, songbirds can vocalize all sorts of sounds. For instance, here's a crow mimicking someone saying, Y'all right, love? Dr. Irene Pepperberg is a professor of animal cognition and interspecies communication at Harvard. She's working with African gray parrots, training them to broaden their repertoire into the realms of human speech. They can't say the words right away. It turns out in order to produce the vocalizations, they have to control their sound source, which is the syrinx, and they have to learn to control the tracheal muscles, the larynx and the glottics, the opening and closing of their beak, and the tongue back and forth and up and down, the way we use our tongue up and down and back and forth. There's lots of muscles and lots of things they have to learn to control, just like we. I mean, think about going ah versus e. So they have to learn all those. Some words are especially hard for Irene's birds. They might not have the right anatomy to replicate the sound faithfully, but they can usually improvise. For something like a p with lips, imagine saying p without lips. That takes much, much longer because the bird has to actually learn how to use esophageal speech to sort of burp it. Getting your ear into the components of birdsong makes it a lot simpler to hear the differences between species, groups, and even individuals. And although there's a huge amount of variety among the 4,000 or more species of songbirds, it's pretty clear that there are different songs for different situations. So uh, a black-capped chickadee will make a certain kind of scraping sound if there's uh, some sort of undefined danger, like a predator at a distance. It'll do a chick-a-dee-dee-dee call, and the number of D notes at the end will increase with increasing anxiety or the approach of a predator and so on. The black-throated green warbler is one where the male has two different kinds of songs. Uh, One song is mainly just for defending the territory and communicating with other males. The other type of song is more for communicating with the female, communicating with the mate. And so they'll use these different songs in different situations. Even the African gray parrots that Irene studies have a vast repertoire of songs in the wild. My students were in Africa for several field seasons. It's extremely hard to study these birds. They live in the canopy. They take off and, you know, you're back down on the ground. Um, So tracking them is extremely hard. 
But what we were able to figure out was that they have a huge repertoire. Certain vocalizations seem to be aggressive. Certain ones seem to be affiliative. A pair-bonded bird had vocalizations they used with one another to identify one another. Birds of the same species will tend to sing the same song. But when groups of those birds live in different regions, some interesting differences start to creep in. There seems to be for certain parrots, we don't know if this is true for greys, but for Amazonian parrots, there are dialects. And if a bird leaves one flock and goes to a different flock, they have to learn a slightly different dialect. White-crowned sparrows uh, just west of Hudson Bay in Canada will sing something uh, that sounds like, I want to go swee-swee now. <laughs> it's a, you know, the same pattern. You can hear them in migration uh, or even on the wintering grounds occasionally doing that same song. But you could go uh, someplace over farther west in Canada and it will be a completely different pattern of songs. It'll still be some whistles and buzzes and trills, but they'll be arranged in a different pattern. It's not just the remixing of a particular bird's song that you can hear when you travel from place to place. Environmental noise will also shape what a bird sings. Birds that live along rushing streams uh, tend to have really loud songs. So like the dipper, for example, has a really loud song so you can hear it over the sound of rushing water. Uh, birds that live down in dense undergrowth often have louder and lower-pitched songs than birds that live up in the treetops where things are more open. But how exactly do these birds learn these songs to begin with? Their call notes are instinctive, so they're born with those, but the songs are learned. The bird apparently has sort of a mental template for what the song is supposed to be. But if it doesn't actually hear the song, it will never learn it. So the template is important because a baby bird is going to hear all kinds of birds in the neighborhood, and it could easily pick up the wrong language. So just like a human baby, the instinct to cry out is hardwired, but a bird's song, like our speech, is learned. Something like a young song sparrow, it's sitting around listening to the male song sparrows singing in the neighborhood and hearing that, and so it picks up the sound. And during the first summer uh, after it hatches, it may not make much sound. In the fall, it may begin doing these weird little whisper songs that are very disorganized. But then the following spring, it will go rapidly through this sequence where it does these really disorganized songs. Then it starts putting the elements together, and eventually it's doing a song very much like what it had heard the previous summer. On the other hand, there are birds whose songs, as complicated as they might be, are completely innate. One such bird is the flycatcher. People have tried the experiment of raising these birds in the laboratory and not letting them hear any natural sound of their own species. But even so, they grow up to sing the right song just perfectly. If you try that with something like a song sparrow, it won't develop the right song. But the flycatchers, they've got it as an instinct. 
And so it's the main way that they recognize their own species. It's not visual. It's entirely based on these songs. Even in the relatively short time that towns and cities have been spreading across the countryside, birds have stayed one step ahead. Studies have found that birds are singing differently in urban areas. In some cases, they sing more loudly or they'll sing at a lower pitch for it to carry better through the uh, surrounding sounds. So with all these noises and competing songs, it's amazing that birds can learn the right melodies. But birds are not just singing for fun. They're communicating with each other. And sometimes they can communicate with us too. Literally, in English. We'll meet an extraordinary bird who learned to communicate at a new level and changed animal science forever. That's coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. NetSuite has simple solutions for complicated business problems. For example, let's say you open a bakery. Before long, your hotcakes are selling like, well, hotcakes. But you keep running out of ingredients. No problem, because not only can NetSuite automate your purchasing so you're never out of stock, but it can also check that your staff have the right training to make those hotcakes to perfection. NetSuite can even handle online orders so your hotcakes can really take off. Having one system handling all of this saves both time and money. And if there's two things we all want more of, it's time and money. Okay, so three things if you include hotcakes. That's probably why more than 37,000 businesses have already signed up for NetSuite by Oracle. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash 20k now to take advantage of this offer. That's netsuite.com slash 20k. NetSuite.com slash 20K. To human ears, bird songs are beautiful background noise. But some birds are so adept to learning new sounds, they can perform sounds from entirely different species. Mockingbirds are known for mimicking the sounds of other birds and animals around them. Their nighttime medley might include the songs of blackbirds, cardinals, house wrens, hawks, and even the sound of frogs. In Australia, the lyrebird takes mimicry to the next level. Here's an alarm, a chainsaw, and a camera shutter. Again, these sounds are coming from a bird. The lyrebird has one of the most complex syrinxes of all songbirds, which means it doesn't just replicate other bird song and animal voices, but pretty much any noise it hears. 
Birds are known as vocal learners. There aren't that many creatures in the world that are vocal learners. I'm mostly it's humans, dolphins, bats, sea lions. Vocal learners are animals that are able to hear a sound, assimilate it, and figure out how to produce it themselves. It turns out it's quite a rare skill that could hint at an underestimated intelligence. Certain birds like the lyrebird and the African gray parrot continue to learn new sounds throughout their entire lifetime. In humans, there are seven brain areas that are responsible for the ability to learn vocalizations. We know that they are seven of these areas in the avian brain, the songbirds that learn. There are very similar areas in the parrots that learn. We know there's even an extra area in the parrot brain, a sort of a shell that allows them to not just learn vocalizations, but learn vocalizations that are not specific to their species. At the Interspecies Communication Lab at Harvard, the birds are taught to associate sounds with objects. Over time, they can demonstrate vocabulary and an understanding of the world around them. For 30 years, the star of Irene's lab was a bird named Alex. Alex was very special, not because he was an Einstein of a parrot, but because he was an only bird for 15 years. And he had this small army of students working with him and treating him like a toddler and talking to him constantly. He became my closest colleague. I care for him the way you care for a colleague. You know, you ask after a colleague's health, you commiserate with them, you care about them in ways but you have a different relationship with them than you would with a pet or with a significant other or with a child. And he was my collaborator and colleague. With the attention of a team of researchers, Alex learned hundreds of words, as well as their meanings, and was soon amazing his human colleagues with his linguistic creativity. I want banana. I want corn. Sock corn. Want to go eat dinner. For example, we were training Alex on apple, and the p sound is quite difficult. And he knew cherry and banana. And he just started calling it banary. You know, like a taste a little bit like a banana looks like a big cherry. Banary? Go see in your bowl if you got banary. Banary? Sometimes he would spontaneously come up with labels. So he came up with banacker, banana cracker. We gave him dried banana chips. He hated them, so that was the end of Banacker. With a solid vocabulary in place, Irene could start to test Alex's cognition with some basic tasks. We were trying to get comprehension of numbers, and we'd give him a tray with numbers of blocks of different colors and slightly different sizes. So there would be, say, six blue, three yellow, and two purple. And I'd say, what color six? And they would be all mixed up. And he'd have to find the six on the tray and say, oh, those were that color. Alex, what matter? Whoa. That's right. How many? Two. That's right. It's the sort of activity you'd use to test small children on their counting abilities. But just like working with small children, things didn't always go as planned. When we did this study, it was very boring because he knew these objects, he knew these colors, he knew these numbers. So I come in one day, and I have, you know, three, four, and six sets on the tray. And I say, what color three? And he looks at me, and he goes, five. And I go, no, Alex, what color three? 
and he repeats five. And I'm looking, okay, there's there's no set of five on the tray. He's not throwing things on the floor. He's not turning his back and preening. He's not saying a wrong color. So I ask him again, again, five. So I say, okay, smarty, what color five? Thinking, all right, you know, you want to talk about five? I don't know what you're going to say. And he looks at me and he goes, none. And there were obviously no five things on the tray. Basically, not only had he shown the zero-like concept, but he had manipulated me into asking the question that he wanted to answer. You're a good boy. Go no, sweetie. No, you can't go back yet. You want some water? All right. Do you want some water, or are you just asking to interrupt? Are you just asking to interrupt? Whether he was cooperating or not, Alex's work on these kinds of tests allowed researchers to begin to compare his and other parrots' intelligence levels to those of humans. In terms of their vocalization abilities, they never got beyond a one-and-a-half or two-year-old child. I mean, we never had complex sentences. But in terms of cognitive processes, some of the tasks we did with Alex showed he was at least the level of a four-year-old child. Hey, look, can you tell me? On the tray, how many green block? Green block. What color bigger? What color bigger? Alex was able to infer the cardinality of a number from its place on the number line, the way young children could do, and apes have not yet been able to do that. How many corners? What shape? Four. Corner. Alex's curiosity and his high performance in cognitive tests pointed at an incredible intelligence that was a total surprise to scientists. They thought that birds were at best mindless mimics, that they were completely inferior to mammals and absolutely inferior to primates. Basically, bird brain was a pejorative term. And here I had this bird that was doing the same types of tasks as the primates. This was a huge breakthrough. I mean, a brain the size of a shelled walnut, literally. An animal separated evolutionarily from humans by 300 million years and doing the same types of tasks as the non-human primates, that was a shock. Having revolutionized the way that we look at birds, not only in terms of their vocal versatility, but also their underappreciated intelligence, Irene and Alex were looking forward to a productive future together. Until disaster struck. I was doing email, which I always do over breakfast. Um, Had just learned that we had gotten a lovely grant. So I was very excited. I treated myself to a second cup of coffee, you know, to celebrate. And I came back with that second cup of coffee and there was an email and it said sad news. And I initially didn't think anything of it. And then I opened it up and it told me that, the you know, there was an ex-parrot in the lab. And it was Alex's cage and I just completely freaked out. According to my veterinarian, it was a heart arrhythmia, which is something that just happens. Everyone had expected Alex's life and his career to go on for decades more. His death was a loss that was felt across the scientific community. He had an obituary in The Economist, in The New York Times and Time Magazine. The emails were pouring in. I mean, my phone was ringing, my lab manager's phone was ringing, the lab phone was ringing, the emails, we couldn't even keep up with the emails. 
Alex was only 31 years old when he passed, and he was expected to live another 15 to 20 years. His last words were to Irene the night before. He said, you be good, see you tomorrow, I love you. I'm fascinated with the idea of understanding how other creatures interpret our world and how they function in our world and helping other people understand the beauty of recognizing other intelligences. On the surface, birdsong is simple. It's a pleasing wash of sound that just happens in the background. But if you stop and listen, you might find a deeper meaning. I would like to encourage people to go out and listen to birds, to just go out and make the conscious effort to focus and concentrate and just listen to the birds, even if you don't know what kind they are. I think you'll be amazed at the variety of sounds that you hear. And if you start to pay more attention, it really will brighten up your world. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team dedicated to making television, film, and games sound incredible. Find out more at defactosound.com. This episode was written and produced by Layla Batterson and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was sound designed and mixed by Nick Spradlin. Thanks to Ken Kaufman and Dr. Irene Pepperberg. You can find out more about the work Irene is doing at alexfoundation.org. And if you want to take Ken up on his advice to go listen to Birdsong in your neighborhood, which I really, really hope you do, then you should pick up one of his beautifully illustrated field guides. You can find that at kaufmanfieldguides.com. That's K-A-U-F-M-A-N fieldguides.com. You can also find them on Amazon or in most places you buy books. All of the human-made music in this episode was from our friends at Musicbed. Check them out at musicbed.com. Finally, if you have a comment, an episode suggestion, or just want to tell us what your favorite bird song is, you can reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or by writing hi at 20k.org. Thanks for listening.